This episode of the CZ Media Podcast is brought to you by Rancho Bravo Tacos. They have two convenient locations, Capitol Hill and Wallingford. I love going to Capitol Hill. I'll go order my food, whether it be tacos, burritos, or tamal. I love their tamales. They're fantastic. And then I'll go sit on the patio, enjoy my meal, and then wait for something interesting to happen. And given that it's Capitol Hill, something interesting always happens. If you don't have time to go to either location, you can always order through your favorite food ordering app, Uber Eats, Caviar, or Chow Now. They make it really easy to get all of your favorite items. So next time you're craving some delicious Mexican food, stop in or order. You'll be glad you did. this is a wine song <laughs> i think so i think it fits i don't think i've ever heard the song and thought you know what yeah. i need to pour me a nice a nice cab well i think more uh some old english i don't know i think uh i think we need to get you know wine songs out of the idea of having to mention wine a lot and just it's more about the attitude and the feel and the uh, swagger okay. of it yeah. gotcha gotcha so this is puts you in a wine drinking mood it does yeah Mm. Is there a difference between wine drinking mood and uh, wine tasting mood? Yeah, wine tasting is a is a professional thing. It's a thing you spend time on and you're devoted to, and you're thinking very intensely about it. So if I was tasting wine, I'd more be in the very chill out, deep house, EDM type of mood, ah. focusing. Whereas this is more like, let's celebrate, let's pop something, let's drink something. Okay. Celebratory mood, you know? All right. I like it. I like it. All right. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the CZ Media Podcast. It's 2020. This it is. is it, it's the real deal. Mokes. Holy smokes. 2020. <laughs> This is the first show of the year. Um, I believe I'm on show 68 or so. 68 and I owe you one. 60, yeah. And uh, technically, this is year starting year three of the show, but I don't count the first year. Yeah. Because we were talking about a little bit earlier. The first year was more experimental, and I only did a few. But last year, I really got motivated and dedicated to doing it. So I did, I've been, all of these shows have pretty much all happened uh, in 2019. So I'm excited about 2020 to keep that consistency going. It's hard to be consistent with anything. Absolutely. And the same thing, you know, you learn, you do stuff, you learn, you make mistakes, you try to learn. Like, you know, one of the first mistakes I learned was don't do these drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Here, hold my beer. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I did. Uh, I've done a few drunk ones, and uh, let's see. One of them was so bad that I just had to take it down. I mean, not that. Not, I mean, I only have a few thousand people listening, so it's not like you know anything major. Yeah. But it was just horrible. It was a. It was a. It was a train wreck of yeah. a show, and from that one, that was the last one. And then from that one, I just said to myself, you know what? Have a drink or two yeah. before, and then take two 
during, but then that's it. Yeah, I find with most forms of work that aren't operating heavy machinery, as long as you are focused on what you're doing, a drink or two is not going to hurt you too bad and oftentimes helps kind of yeah. get the creative juices Loosey-goosey. flowing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, that, it's that perfect medium between first coffee after the afternoon and first beer of the evening that I that I really find my creative faculties gotcha. at their best. Yeah. You know, I, I totally agree. So today I am really excited uh, to have Jackson, and I'm not even going to try to say your last name. Rorba. Rorba. Yeah. I was totally pronouncing it Braria before. So, <laughs> it's a lot of consonants for so sure. So the it, it it where does that originate? It's a German name, so Rohrbach would be the sort of original family German name as you'll see there's actually villages named that in Alsace in Germany. Okay. Um I think there's one in Switzerland too. Um and then some point when people immigrated through Ellis Island, they changed it to Rohrbach because that's way easier than Rohrbach. Yeah, it is. <laughs> don't know why they decided to do it that way. Yeah, but. I mean, you could totally just right off of the tongue yeah. and easy to spell. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So, Jackson, tell. so I, I, I pitched the show as I want to talk to people who are in Seattle. I really market this as a yeah. Seattle-centric show cool. who do awesome, cool things. So what's your awesome, cool superpower? Well, I absolutely love stories, and I love flavors, and I love cooking. So those, and I love history, I love language. Those things naturally led me towards studying wine because it's one of those disciplines that combines all these different things that you can learn about Mm -hmm. that are all fascinating in their own right. Uh, But when I discovered wine and started learning about wine, I realized that there was one discipline that handled so many other fascinating subjects and all unrolled into one. And if you could become a master of this subject, uh, not only could you, would you be a a better learner of history, a better taster, uh, a better storyteller, uh, but you would sort of have mastery of all these different subjects. And that was just really fascinating to me. It was the first thing I studied that ever was easy for me to study and just really so you just took to it took to it yeah you're like you know what i'm i i love every <clears throat> second of of uh learning this and studying this yes absolutely. that's awesome so that led you to being a master sommelier mm-hmm. that is very very cool especially from someone who i'm a newbie when it comes to wine even though i've sort of been drinking it for a long time um but still don't know I don't pay attention to where it came from. <laughs> yeah. I just, if it's in front of me and I drink it or taste it and yeah. I like it, I'll keep on drinking <laughs> it until it's gone. <laughs> but it is really interesting because, of, you know, uh, I love documentaries. So I'm pretty sure that, uh, that you know where I'm going with this, where the Psalm, the Psalm documentaries just, Oh, you watched it. I, yeah. I, I there's three of them and I've yeah. seen the first two. We haven't seen okay. the third one Very yet, cool. but the drama and the the competitiveness that they were able to put into that documentary, those documentaries, yeah. it just makes it intriguing and just, th- th- I mean, not that I'm going to want to study it as profoundly as you did, but to learn yeah. more, it does it does uh, promote and encourage you to to learn more about it. Yeah, I think the thing I've the truth that's kind of become evident to me after studying this thing and becoming a master sommelier. Um, a lot of people sort of see this sommelier as like someone really threatening who comes to your table in a restaurant with yeah. like a monocle and a top hat and, you know, is there <laughs> to tell you how wrong you are about something. Um, and or yeah, with one of those uh, ascots. Yeah, like ascot. A, a metal. Or yeah, the, tas- the Tostavan was what that's called. <laughs> it's like this ridiculous old school, like 70s fine dining thing. Yeah. I think the thing that um, that I'm really trying to push for in my career and I'm trying to like change the perception of that is that if you become, if you want to really study and learn and go to the absolute depth of knowledge on a subject, what it really tells you is how much you don't know. And there should be humility and knowledge. There should be a sense of uh, awe at the things you don't know. And yeah. I think you should be a lifelong learner. I think everyone should be a lifelong learner, but especially in the wine world. I mean, you have thousands of different wine regions and grape varieties, and every one of those regions has a new vintage every year. So the harvest is different. There's two different hemispheres. There's, you know, thousands upon thousands of different microclimates. So there's really no way you can know it all. Right. Um, 
And the more you progress through the path of learning about wine, the less you realize you really can know. Uh, so I feel like the people who know the most should be the most humble. Uh, and that's my hope to communicate to people is that, you know, being a sommelier and, and whether that, whether you're a sommelier who's an incredible sommelier at what you do at your restaurant or whether you're a master sommelier, um, it's really about learning about openness of mind, about being, uh, open and willing to take on new ideas and yeah. learn new things. Uh, that's my hope for uh, everyone who sets out on the path to learn more about wine. I think it's super rewarding, but it's not about, you know, the, the documentaries are great. They portray this sort of <laughs> stress and the intensity of that exam yeah. setting, but that's not most people's reality. Uh, that's a few people's reality. And, you know, it's, it is what it is. Yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, it's a master course in a very vast subject. So you, that can be about anything and it's going to be a stressful process of studying for it and and actually taking it it's yeah. it's that that's sort of par for the course when you're that high on something yeah um so you said that there because there are so many microclimates and there's so many uh varietals or is, is that yeah how grape varieties is, is we could say so yeah. are there uh do certain sommeliers focus on a certain region or are like mega experts on one and yes. then might not be as knowledgeable about others yeah most sommeliers, I think if you're worth your salt, you'll do your homework to learn about other regions that may not be your favorite to learn about. Because, mm -hmm. And that's one benefit of going through those tests uh, is that you know, no one necessarily sets out to instantly become an expert on – if you're a U.S. sommelier, you're not necessarily instantly going to go down the path of you know, learning about Chilean wine or Argentine wine or uh, any of those things. Turns out, if you make yourself learn about those things and have to actually take an exam on them, you end up finding out amazing things you never would have found yeah. out about that country and its wines and some of the interesting little gems that come from those countries. Yeah. Because everyone's a, kind of, when they start out, is obsessed with the French and or Italian or German wine. And those, those are, are all the go-tos. Really go-tos, the sort of classic regions for those, place, uh, for those types of wines um, that are the most evocative, sometimes most expensive, most romantic wines that you might see. Uh, but it's that process of forcing yourself to learn about things uh, that don't necessarily come natural to you that yeah. expands your horizons and actually makes you a more uh, well-rounded sommelier. But to answer your question, yes, tons of experts out there. I think of someone like Raj Veda in New York City. He runs the wine program at the restaurant, Danielle. Mm -hmm. I trust his Burgundy knowledge uh, really, really deeply above most any sommelier out there uh, and his Bordeaux knowledge. I mean, people like that who specialize uh, in French wine for one and then have some of the greatest wines in the world on their list yeah. uh, and are tasting those things regularly and seeing them. And I'm running one of the greatest wine programs in the country. Uh, I look at Acquarello in San Francisco and they do a lot of Northern Italian cuisine, a lot of Piemontese stuff. And uh, so Giampaolo Patrolini and uh, Rafael Santos who run the program there, they... Uh, are very, very versed in Italian wine and incredible at it. And they just have great insight into right. vintages and producers and how things are drinking. And they have great connections with collectors who bring in things to drink and, and understand. So that's their, would you call it a niche? niche? Yeah, that's niche. their niche. Absolutely. What would you say yours is? What would you, what's your favorite region to, <clears throat> to taste and then to drink uh, in your own, you know, for your own uh, enjoyment? For my own enjoyment, I really love Italian wine. I love how food friendly it is. It's almost wine that you can't really enjoy at its best unless you have mm. a delicious dish next to it. Uh, Piedmontese, so when we talk about the wines from right around Torino, where the right there where the Olympics were, mm -hmm. um, if you go just a little ways south of Torino, you'll find Barolo and Barbaresco, yeah. two wonderful uh, red wine regions. And all the wines they grow around there are fantastic, too. It's a region that I'm still getting into discovering. I've been there several times. Love it. I want to go back. It's a if I was gonna continue to push my expertise into one region, that's the region I'd probably I would be there. Now continue was, to. I remember um, going through your well because I follow you. I've been following you on social yeah. media, and you were posting. You did a European trip, and you were posting these awesome pictures from what I'm assuming are like really old wine cellars. Yeah, where there's like cobwebs or oh yeah that was uh, like, sherry region yeah we were and that's another that's another one of my regions that i'm kind of it's one of my pet projects of yeah. something i love that no one else really likes like sherry is 
at the lowest point in terms of sales and ability to market itself that it's ever been in its history because no one drinks fortified wine anymore. Everybody thinks sherry means like a really gross sweet wine. Or something to cook with. Something to cook with. Um, California still makes a bunch of like really bulk things that they call, pardon me, that they call quote unquote sherry. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you think about the damage that does, they they can still make something called sherry in California, even though that's not the traditional region for mm. it. And so those go to the very bottom of the shelf on at a grocery store and they're cheap and they're very poorly made. Um, so who buys that? People buy that to cook with. To so that's a normal. Saute mushrooms in still- so it's not like kids who think <laughs> <laughs> they might. I don't know. I don't recommend it. I'm pretty sure they they reach the white claw before they reach for that. Um, well, there was a time when I was a kid where I wanted to be sophisticated, uh-huh. but I didn't go to wine. I went with uh, Southern Comfort because I saw an ad and there was this really sophisticated looking guy drinking Southern Comfort. So <laughs> I, I had that. I had that phase with Southern Comfort too. <laughs> My one of my bands I was into in high school called Brand New. They had a song called Soco Amarato Lime. So I remember ordering that, uh, <laughs> thinking like, "Oh, this is going to be great." And maybe at the time I thought it was, but wow, that's a terrible drink. Yeah. And then, <laughs> then uh, after that, it was a period where uh, the girls really liked Alize. Alize. Oh yeah, but like that's Tupac, not even wine, Tupac is it? style. It's a liqueur, passion fruit liqueur. Yeah. Well, they so, have like different flavors, but like they—that's all they wanted to drink. So there were at these house parties I would go to, there would just be, you know, <laughs> like this rainbow of colors. Hypnotic, <laughs> hypnotic, and Alize. Yeah, yeah. Like so, so there's a drink called Thug's Passion. It's like uh, cognac, uh, cristal champagne, and Al- and passion fruit Alize. Uh, and yeah. Why would you destroy? crystal with that <laughs> i don't know it, it's a thing it's, it was tupac's favorite drink so, okay yeah. i don't well you know uh, what do uh, i'm gonna say what do i know a lot because that's one of my go-to sayings but yeah. i've only had i had crystal one time and it was like oh it was okay like does it yeah. would you say that it's uh like mega spectacular that it deserves the rep that it has Crystal is a really expensive luxury product, right? Mm. So uh, there's an there's actually an incredible story behind Crystal. But when you think about these champagnes, Dom Perignon, Crystal, uh, you know, Veuve Clicquot, Grand Dame, Krug, Grand Cuvée, all the great prestige cuvées of champagne, um, they can get astronomical really quickly. Yeah. Um, are they like a bottle of Cristal might be five, six, seven hundred dollars on a wine list? And there's also champagnes from a small family grower like Robert Monqui or Pierre Peters sitting on that same wine, wine list for $95 or 125 Those happen to be really outstanding, beautiful champagnes made by one person yeah. from a small collection of family vineyards, worked organically. Uh, and that, you know, Cristal. They probably make, you know, eighty thousand more cases of that crystal than they do of that other champagne. Right. Um, doesn't the quantity subject is not necessarily um, telling you whether it's a good wine or not. So you can make a really great wine in large quantities, but sometimes it's more special to drink something made by one person's hand and a very uncompromising vision from one vineyard. Uh, it tells you something about a specific place, whereas crystal tells you about the story of that winery and their vision of what quality is it doesn't yeah. tell you about a specific vineyard gotcha. it tells you about champagne in general but to make crystal they source from several different vineyards all over champagne whereas you look at a robert monqui and they have a wine called vosimu it's one little parcel uh and it is a really special wine that tells you about that actual vineyard because you know all that wine just came from that little yeah. block of vineyards and it's not so a big vineyard would you call that boutique yeah, boutique, or you could just say, hey, this is from a small family grower. Uh, in the champagne world, they call that RM, Recoltant Manipulant. It means this person harvested the grapes and also made the wine. And yeah, that's so there's, there's some really shop, cool almost. champagnes like that that, to me, provide a really luxurious, incredible drinking experience, but they don't carry a $900 price tag when you want to buy a bottle of it and enjoy it. It doesn't mean that $900 one isn't a great wine. It is, uh, and there's a lot of delicious champagnes made that way. But I'm more interested in my career of finding out uh, what is what is the nature of craft and why? Uh, what can I learn from this person working this one vineyard, uh, or just making this very small c- 
cuvee because it's more of a vision of their family's uh, background and their family's future than it is run by a big firm with an immense marketing budget and lots of money to spend on the box that it comes in and lots of money to spend on the, you know, the people who, the models who pour the wine at, at big glitzy events. Yeah. Again, like I'm not bagging on the wine itself. No, but it's, it's a I good mean, it's wine. But there it's, is something to look at there because there's a lot of dollars behind uh, the marketing of some of these products, and it's like, hey, why instead of shipping in this ridiculous cardboard like gold leaf box that right. probably costs you fifteen dollars or twenty five dollars yeah, just exactly. to get the box, it's like I would love if that money got spent on the viticulture. Uh, weird story about champagne. Up until about thirty, forty years ago. Even even earlier, in some cases, uh, Parisians would take their trash, like all the blue trash bags would get dumped right into the vineyards in Champagne. And not like compost, like just trash. Yeah. They would fertilize the vineyards with trash from Paris uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And if you walk through the vineyards in this part of Champagne, in fact, Robert Monquy, I was walking through vineyards with him in champagne and we look look down and you pick a little pl- blue plastic pieces up in the vineyard they're, they're trying still there. desperately to clean it up uh <laughs> and trying hard but yeah there's trash in the vineyards it's crazy and no and i don't know what the logic was behind that and why they decided to do it but it's a little nutty well they did it i failed to realize that plastic doesn't buy <laughs> yeah i i've drank a lot of champagne i hope i don't have inordinate amounts of microplastics in of my plastics in you <laughs> uh, yeah i mean that's the, the, the i mean that's sort of the People are aware of that, even in fish and and yeah. stuff like that. It's crazy. Yeah. It's the real deal. I, yeah, I'm all for the less plastic than possible. But when it comes yeah. to the packaging, like you were mentioning, messaging, mentioning, mentioning, <laughs> English is it's my second good. language. People, it's all good. <laughs> it is crazy of how much companies spend on because it, it. I mean, it's not the. I mean, just the 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 packaging itself. It's them paying someone a whole lot of money to design that packaging. Yeah. Uh, I was sort of in the packaging industry for oh, a bit. Oh, cool! Uh, I worked for a company that made barcode. That that I worked for a company that manufactured a software mm-hmm. to create barcodes. So everything has a barcode. So we were embedded into pretty much everything. Wow! And I would go to these conferences, and they would dedicate a big chunk of the conferences or the expo to packaging. Hmm. And there, I mean, from there, I learned that you can go to like Ohio state and get a master's in packaging. Hmm. So there's all of these things. And, Crazy. and and that's what they do is just to look at a product and then try to design something that goes around it. That yeah. makes it look, you know, may, you know, and makes it look cool and, yeah. and uh, a luxury item. But and, and and you know, a lot of companies do that. Uh, so when you did go on your, like, you know, in my head, I'm thinking of the underground seller with mm-hmm. like the really like, like, did you see like the 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 mold growing over the bottles? Uh-huh. That is super cool. Yeah. So some you you see this way less in the new world, so way less in the U.S. Uh, although there are sellers like I've been to in the U.S. that are have a long history, some hundred years old or more. And would those in Australia be and, East Coast? East Coast? Uh, no, or West no, West Coast. Coast. Like Napa's wine history goes back to um, the 1800s. Oh, okay. In California, there were vines planted. Um, long before that too. Um, when I, but I, when you go to a family winery, it's literally been there 300, 400 years. Yeah. And some of them very much have like in Champagne, that's, that's 200 years is nothing. Those family wineries have been a lot, around a long time. Right. Um, and you will see that cellar mold and that cellar mold actually can help with the environment and maintaining sort of certain lists, uh, type of humidity yeah. or just keeping things cooler. Um, all those. And there's actually places where cellar mold, like in cognac or in Tokai, actually helps influence the flavor of the wine through the air that it creates in the cellar. So, so those those s- cellars that are, you know, really, really old, are there, like, what what has been, let me see, how can I rephrase this? Well, I'll just say, what's the oldest bottle you've opened and tasted or drank? oldest bottle I've opened and tasted uh, was about a year and a half ago. It was an 1879 uh, Madeira, and it was pretty cool. That is 150 yeah. years old. 
Yeah, so uh, the Madeira, Madeira is this island uh, off the coast of Africa. It originally was discovered by Europeans in uh, the late 1400s. So it was one of the first places Portugal discovered as they kind of started sending their ships out. Mm -hmm. And uh, Madeira is almost subtropical in its climate, but there have been grapes planted there since Portuguese arrived because Europeans had wine grapes and they would generally plant them everywhere they went. Uh, Portugal's uh, island of Madeira is uh, volcanic, and they just figured out that, hey, if we take these wines and we fortify them with a little liquor uh, to keep them stronger for the voyage, because if you take like this Sauvignon Blanc that I have over here, if you were to send that on a wooden ship across the ocean with no temperature control, it'd be absolutely ruined by the time it got there, because there's really no way to keep a wine stable. So if you add a little bit of brandy to a wine, it'll stabilize it. That's why we have fortified wines in the first place. Mm, it's uh, their, it's a, it's a good type of preservative. Yeah, and then they heat it up uh, over the course of months. They heat it up and cool it off and heat it up and cool it off. And what that does to Madeira is it basically makes it indestructible. So all the things that you would normally ruin a wine, oxygen, heat, light, uh, you know, motion, all those things would ruin any normal table wine, but they've already done all that stuff to Madeira. So once it finally hits the bottle, it's already kind it's of been ruined. To it. uh, but ruined in a way that's actually flavorful and good. And so it improves and improves and improves with gotcha. more age. So you can have a Madeira from the 1700s or 1800s and have it be more complex, more incredible. Wow. So yeah. How, Were you like jittery, like excited as yeah. they were? Did you open it? Yeah, I opened it. Did you open it with... Uh... No, we used uh, port tongs. Okay. So you heat up uh, tongs in a fire until they're red hot, clasp them on the bottle, uh, and let the bottle take the neck of the bottle heat up significantly to where the bottle's the glass is starting to take on that heat. Yeah. And then you take a cold washcloth dipped uh, okay. in uh, ice water and you wrap it instantly right around the neck of the bottle and it pops off in one fell yeah. swoop and then it leaves a clean cut. Of course, you still filter it out just to make sure there's nothing. Uh, in terms of glass or shards that fell in there, uh, but yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. It's a fun old school way to open stuff. When was this? This was I don't know a year and a half ago. It was at Canlis. It was a, I mean, we had it on the list for like twelve hundred dollars or twenty or you know eighteen hundred dollars for this bottle, and someone bought it. So yeah, nice, pretty fun. Did, so uh, so since since you sold it, did you mm-hmm. get to? Did oh, they did let you some. taste it? I got to taste some. It was you, out of yeah. control. <laughs> Out of control, like so aromatic. The type of wine that a, a couple drops of it start to fill the room with, with like that volatile, caramelized torrefaction, like roasted coffee flavor, uh, and you can so you can smell it from a couple well, feet away. That's exciting. It's pretty cool. So did the whoever bought it? Do you think they kept the bottle? Uh, no, I, I kept the bottle. You kept. <laughs> Or I think I uh, left it at the restaurant so people could see it. Because the, yeah. I mean, you the people like if you do that, you got to keep the bottle right or the because you can't take the label off. Not of that one. You can take labels off of bottles, but yeah, this particular one, you know, I I kept at the restaurant. I just learned the other day that if you buy a fancy bottle, that they'll put it, the label in an envelope and then give it to you. Oh, is that yeah. a, is that a thing? Uh, that's some some places do that. Yeah. I was I was listening to Howard Stern oh, the other nice. day and. And uh, this is an old show, but he took Robin out for her birthday. And the, the this one particular bit was that he was a little bit upset that she ordered about four or five bottles that were 800 each. Yeah. And then he's, uh, I don't know if you listen, if you're a Howard fan, but Not he's, really, he's but, sort of but, cheap. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so he's like, Frugal. Robin, he's like, Robin, you know better. He was like, I was expecting you to order like a two hundred dollar bottle. It was like eight hundred. Well, anyway, yeah. so he went off about how guy's that was just rude. But come on, yeah. you're worth five hundred million dollars. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Exactly. So no, that was super cool. Um, the so you mentioned Canlis. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, tell me a little bit about that. What was your what did you do there? I started That's- there in two thousand eight. I started as uh, a service assistant, so basically a busser who helps support the the restaurant staff. I was finishing school at UW at the time and just wanting to find a place to work and wanting to learn. And um, Canlis ended up being a really great place for that. It's an awesome family. Uh, it's run by currently by Mark and Brian Canlis. They're mm-hmm. the third generation family owners. The restaurant was founded in 1950. Uh, and they've really created an environment of learning, of growth, of pushing for the utmost quality in everything you do. Yeah. 
Um, and so it was a really cool place for me to learn and grow and just be exposed to new stuff and be exposed to wine. And that was part of what kind of sent me down the path to being a sommelier. Oh, okay. Just, so is that, so that's, that was your kickoff. That was your catalyst for yeah into the world of food and wine and well, yeah. f- I mean, fine had, dining and yeah, fine dining. I'd worked at some restaurants before and was interested in cocktails, wine, food, um, I eventually worked all, all the different positions in the restaurant, at least in the front of the house, mm-hmm. uh, in the dining room, w- worked as a barista, worked as a bartender, then became a lead server, then got a chance to take a couple wine tests and I took to it pretty easily. I just loved it and was just wanted to study it more. And so I pushed hard to get over those initial tests and then it was like, okay, well you, you seem like you're on the track here. Uh, you should take your advanced exam. And then I passed that. And it was like, at that point I was starting to be involved with the wine team and helping out with receiving and tasting and, uh, being part of it. And then eventually became the assistant wine director. Um, my boss, Nelson, who's a great friend of mine, uh, Nelson DeKip also would be a cool podcaster to have. Um, and he, uh, he really took me under his wing and pushed me hard, uh, like, you know, Asian dad style, like, okay, that's not good enough. Come back. And like, okay, like the, the bar has been set. I need to put, I need to, you know, show these guys I really want this and, um, and really learned a lot from those guys. And then eventually took his job over as wine director for the last year. So he could do a little bit of a, um, little bit of sabbatical and enjoy some time with family. And then when he came back, I was kind of ready to move to the next step uh, of my career. So, yeah, so I left Canlis because it was ten years. It had been ten years. I was kind of ready to, yeah, that's know, a, take a break. That's a that's a good stretch for yeah. being at a place. And restaurant nights are tough. You know, it's twelve hour days sometimes. It's work until one, two in the morning sometimes. So, so the it's hard on you. When did you take your master sommelier test? Two thousand. I passed in two thousand seventeen. So you yeah. were their master sommelier for like a little over a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what did, um, how, like, how was that? Like, I mean, so I'm assuming you having that title to your name at that restaurant and for the people who don't, who don't know, Canlis is like one of, or, or Seattle's most prestigious, fancy restaurant. <laughs> yeah. And like calling it prestigious and fancy <clears throat> is one thing, but I would also say that like, Canlis is very deeply about hospitality and about taking care of people. Yeah. And there's a sort of like lame image out there that like Canlis is like full of mean, rich people. And like, trust me, no one who works there uh, would fit that description. Like people who work there really love it. They care. Uh, yes, it can be a pricey experience, but it's there to deliver the goods and to provide a place where you can feel safe and you can, uh, be trusted, uh, that, that the restaurant can be entrusted with right. your valuable time with you and your family. Yeah. Um, uh, because it really, we really do care about it. Well, it's classy. So yeah, classy. <laughs> it's a cool it's, spot. It's classy. Sure. And yeah, I, mean, I, I used to, I used to live sort of near it. And, uh, when I would go to Fremont, uh, yeah, Fremont drive by it. Yeah. And I mean, never been there, but I've seen the website. You're, you're right. It's a beautiful place. Great yeah. view. And, Someday I'll go. It's an awesome. <laughs> it looks like an awesome spaceship from outside. And yeah. Lately, they've been having these canless burger and well, what are what what are you talking about? The thing in the summer? Yeah. The tiki nights. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a we call it Hawaiian nights, and we set up a tiki bar in the parking lot. Oh, okay. And if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that I am like a tiki fanatic. Like I love tropical yeah. drinks and <laughs> not not cheap ones made with like sweet and sour mix from the store, but like made with fresh juice and really great aged rum that's layered. And tiki drinks can be incredible if you do them right. And so we had this whole thing out in the parking lot where we had tiki huts set up. We had, um, you know, DJs spinning. We had a hot tub slash pool thing, tons of awesome food, nachos, tiki drinks, uh, it was a party and we did it Friday nice. and Saturday for about eight weeks straight in the summer. And I bartended for not every one of them, but most of them. And, and like anyone could go. Anyone could like... go. Yeah. There was no cover, but it was, it, the line got nutty. Right. Mean, we did 1200 people the last day. Wow. Crazy. Like this... absolutely nuts. I saw it because a, uh, well, a sort of a, an acquaintance went to a couple of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how could you afford, like, I know this person. It's like, how could you afford to go to Canada twice yeah. <laughs> within, you know, with the, in the summer? And uh, so that's that's super cool. Do you think they're going to do that again? I think we, I think they will. I, I would love to go back and bartend again, although maybe not all eight weeks because it was exhausting for was, that many people and yeah. all that stuff. But it and was w- fun. Was it what the, was it, what was the menu? 
Do you remember? Uh, it was we had um, Colby ribs, so Korean style, um, like open fire cooked short ribs with like teriyaki marinade, uh, and then we had nachos, and they were like beautiful slow cooked pork pull, uh, oh. pulled pork nachos with yeah. like like fresh made queso and uh, pickled onions and cilantro. They were delicious. Uh, there was pizza done in the wood fired oven. And then the, on the drinks menu, we had these um, delicious uh, pineapple and gin based drinks. And then we had White Claws because everyone loves White Claws. <laughs> we sold so many White Claws. It was crazy. <laughs> and then we had uh, the Kamoku, which is like this big old uh, molded glass bowl served on driftwood uh, with like tons of umbrellas and mint and straws coming out of it. To, and then a half bottle of champagne upended into it. It was like a hundred. $40 drink or something crazy like that. But it was like for six people to drink, <laughs> six to eight people could drink on this thing with the big long straws. And it was, and we hit the gong when it come out and everyone would yell Kamoku. It was fun. It was awesome. all about the ceremony and the, and just the vibe that we were creating out there. And a lot of people had a lot of good, good times. Yeah. So hopefully if it happens again, I'll make it out. I'll, I'll make it out. I sort of thought, well, I didn't, I didn't really research it. I just saw that she was posting this and, yeah. So if it happens again, I'll definitely yeah, have to go party. and check it out. <laughs> um, I think that, that's uh, that, that'll be the good first step to going to <laughs> going to Canada's. So you let you 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 left there. You said you're not there anymore. Um, I will occasionally work. Like usually once a month, I'll do a little sommelier shift on the floor. Mm-hmm. I, I, my name's like still on the list, which is kind of fun. They've they've left it on there, gotcha. and I, I'm such good friends with everyone who works there, and. They've just been such a great force of good in my life, and I've learned so much. So That's I, fantastic. I like to keep that connection open. So now that you're not there full-time, what are you doing now? So I just launched, the day before Thanksgiving this last year, I launched uh, Crunchy Red Fruit, which is my company. Crunchy and, Red Fruit. Yes. All right. So Crunchy Red Fruit I uh, designed as, it's kind of like a wine club. I'm calling it a circle because club to me just sounds very... Uh, exclusive and um, limiting, and I wanted people to feel welcomed into it, so I'm calling it a circle. Uh, and you join the circle, you get a box of six bottles of wine every two months. It costs one eighty nine and includes shipping. Uh, okay, it includes shipping. It includes shipping. Yeah, it doesn't include tax. Uh, basically, the reason I wanted to do this is because. When you go into a wine store, it's overwhelming for one, yeah. even for me. Like I know a ton about wine and I'd been doing this for years, but even to walk in a wine shop, it's kind of, wow, I have no idea what to pick right now. It's just overwhelming. There's, There's just too so much it's to just pick. an endless row upon row of bottles. Yeah. And also if you do to a normal grocery store, the types of things on offer are usually just not very good. They're usually industrial wines. Wait, made in- are you saying that? You're probably not going to get something good at Grocery Outlet Wine. <laughs> grocery Outlet? No. Uh, <laughs> what I'm saying is the system in the U.S. of getting wine to a consumer very much favors large distributors and producers. Yeah. So they will they can barge into a Safeway and say, I want this much shelf space, and I want to put these five bottles there. And the person, there's no one at Safeway to say no to them or to say, I want the wines to actually be quality no. or to have this criteria or to be made with organic viticulture or made by a family winery who cares. It's just about moving a commodity good and right. not about really exposing people to the best yeah. wine possible. It's, can you give me you know, 10,000 bottles or whatever? Exactly. Uh, and the same, same goes for the bigger box stores, uh, for, for Costco and for Walmart, for Target. Those people buy, they have contracts with some huge uh, wine producers and wine ownership groups and then move them through big distributor groups and basically just get the product to the end consumer that way. And does that mean there's those wines are all bad? Not necessarily. There's some good wines that make it and there's some good stories that make it to the consumer. But when I spend all year tasting a couple thousand different wines every year right and i discover these incredible little gems that are made by a family producer who doesn't have a marketing budget they don't have someone there to do tv ads or to fly a big you know plane with a banner to advertise stella rosa pinot grigio over seattle which i think is absolutely ridiculous (laughs) i haven't Um, seen that one yet (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's like in the summer they'll get watch for it. They'll fly the plane around with the Stella Rosa uh, banner behind it to try to get people to buy there. Who's the what's that one? Italian is it wine. the Menage? No, Stella Rosa. I think it's called. Is okay. It's it's total plonk. Um, and look, 
there's I'm not going to tell someone not to drink those wines, but I want to offer them a better way. I want right. to say, hey, I'm not only have I vetted and tasted everything in this box and said, I really care about quality and I really care about organic viticulture and making sure the land's getting taken care of, making sure the people are getting taken care of. These are families who take good care of their employees and the land. Uh, and also they're making really interesting wine that has a great story behind it right. that might be made from a different variety you've never heard of, but it's I can I've tasted it. And I've also tasted all the other ones that are not that good. And I'm telling you, this is something right. worth your attention. And I'm bringing it right to your door with a wine box. That's so, a great idea yeah. because you're right. I mean, you you it's your job to do all of these tastings and to evaluate and anal analyze. And that is useful, important, and uh, awesome information that you can then share with others. Yeah. And you're you're putting it together in a way that it's not scary. Yeah. I'm doing the shopping and the tasting for you. And so when you get your box, not only are there six wines in it, uh, but there's there'll be little gifts in each box. And then each wine gets a card, an info card with some tasting notes and some food pairings and recipe ideas. Uh, and then you, there's a QR code that takes you right to the online site. There's a video of me talking about the wine and tasting it with you. Uh, and then there's recipe links and suggestions oh. that'll tell you all about the wine and all about uh, when I why you should pair this certain food or that certain food. And you do it. that for each each bottle, each, each bottle. bottle, and every release gets that. So wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of content. I just found out how much it takes to produce all that and create it for every release. That's why I'm doing it every two months. So yeah. I can't I, to produce that much content every week would be crazy. Isn't um, well uh, again, and this is just my lack of knowledge. But so six, you're doing six releases. You're doing six. That's kind of a lot, isn't it? For uh, a I don't know if you said you don't want to call it a club, so we'll stay with the circle. Yeah, and I'm I'm specifically pick six bottles once every two months, so that's less than one bottle of wine a week. Uh, most people I know who are into wine typically drink oh, at yeah. least a bottle a week or, <laughs> or popping things. And and the goal is not hey these are these are important wines that you need to put in your cellar and drink okay. now through 2060. Uh, these are wines that you can drink right now. Right they now. are just ready gotcha. to pop, ready to have fun with, and I want people to get over themselves about wine. People are so worried about wine. They're right. Like, well, that thing, my question is, was yeah. predicated on that of me, of me thinking, okay, when you join something like this, sometimes they don't want you to like, because of that, they don't want you to drink it right away. Yeah. But we do have a couple winemaker friends who have told us drink this now. Like yeah. I've made this so that you can drink it now. Yep. And there are the occasions where they've said, you know, sit on this for a little bit. Yeah. And I might have those two in my box, but, but you want people is, to sign up, and then just start enjoying all of these yeah. awesome wines that you've already that that you've yep. given the Jackson stamp of approval yeah. on and enjoy them right now. There's a reason that's not six like sixteen percent alcohol by volume Napa cabs in the box that are current release and you have to wait. There's a lot of there's gonna be a couple of white wines or a white and a rose and things that are ready to pop and enjoy right away in every box. And even the reds, I'm veering away from big, massive, overpowering reds that are like make you drunk with one glass uh, and towards ones that are <laughs> yeah which ones are those share those with me yeah <laughs> and and you know i'm i care about big uh powerful wines too and there will probably be one in every box but it's not going to be six of them you know i want people to experience the diversity and range that's in the wine world and see all the different flavors that are out there because the grocery stores are not doing that for people right now no the grocery stores are saying hey our consumer focus group told us that you like uh pinot grigio that's 13% alcohol and has a mild perceptible sweetness according to our tasting <laughs> panel. So that's, we're going to put 20 of them in front of you and hopefully sell lots of them to you right. rather than, Hey, have you ever had this Sauvignon Blanc from Turenne? It's cheaper than Sancerre. It's delicious. It's made with organic viticulture and fermented with wild yeast. And it's made by uh, one wine producer who really cares what they're doing. And it costs just as much as that crummy Pinot Grigio that everyone's been drinking, but it's actually made with a lot more integrity and has a better story to tell. Yeah. And that's the kind of wine that just doesn't ever make it to the end consumer that I'm trying to get in front of people. And also just say, hey, you know, we have a lot of trepidation about wine. Like, oh, I'm nervous that I'm not opening it right or doing it right or drinking it right. Like, that's an American thing to be that concerned about wine. If you right. go to France or Italy, like people just pop stuff and drink it and don't. Oh, yeah. They or they have it. their wine in jugs. If you watch The Godfather, yeah. they're drinking. Yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> totally. Um, Did you so, watch The Irishman? I haven't yet. No, I want to watch it. Well, I'll tell you this one part. It's, there's nothing about the story. Um, but the uh, it, what they were doing is that they were drinking wine out of the little 
little glasses, mm-hmm. like not wine glasses, but the little, just a, reg- like a regular little, little glass. Cups, yeah. And they would take their bread and dip it in the bread. Ooh, and I then like eat their eat, the eat it like that. Yeah, I'll I'll do that at home sometimes. I I'm no stranger to drinking wine out of a cup. I mean, yes, I can get serious and swirl wine and make tasting notes, but sometimes you're have a plate of pasta, you just want some like really delicious chuggable red wine and you yeah. put it in a cup and you don't think too hard about it and that is totally fine. Can we name names here? And what? on uh, so I read I recall a uh, a a posting about uh about a which one was it they have a horses on their label hmm 14 hands yeah oh yeah and i'm recalling if you were a fan or not no i'm not a fan okay i was i was gonna go there i wasn't sure if you wanted to say it oh no i'll say it what's hilarious about it is that my wife buys those but she buys it because we have friends that just don't appreciate it so yeah. it's like it would be kind of lost to you yeah. know open our our nice stuff yeah and uh it was, was what made me laugh about that post that that or the mention that you did is because literally a day or two before that we had opened one of theirs that we she just got at the grocery store mm-hmm. not from the thing and i'm like i can't drink like yeah like I, i'm just not it, it just it, it didn't do it for me and then when i saw what you had posted i'm like yes <laughs> <laughs> i think i think here's the thing the ambition of 14 hands is not to be a wine that's criticized in a meaningful way right so you can criticize it however you want if i can go to 7-eleven down the street and get a bottle of 14 hands then we can say whatever the heck we want to about it because obviously they don't care that much yeah they're just trying to sell it it's a commodity product i guess i'm not sure if you would know this or not but what they serve at their their tasting rooms is not that yeah they i mean it's it's not the only wine in their range i mean yeah because we go we have uh we do we do we like to do these labor day um Prosser getaways and that's yeah. one of the places we go to. I mean they have a beautiful tasting room. Yeah. But what they yeah, what they serve there is not what gets gets sold in the grocery store. Take Chateau Saint Michel, for example. They're the largest winery in Washington. Millions and millions of cases of wine they make. I mean they they not just the Chateau Saint Michel label, but between all the things that they import or have a direct relationship with, um, they have a lot of wine that they're responsible for, but they have a lot, they have some wine at the lower end that yes, is when you talk about gas station wine, shout out to St. Michelle Riesling, probably, you know, nine ninety nine on a, a gas station shelf. And that's, <laughs> Hey, you know what? I'm not going to bag on anyone for drinking that, but we will be honest about the critique about those wines. Yeah. They are cheaply made. Um, actually shout out to St. Michelle on the lower end, very much higher quality than most of the lower end producers. I think so. But also Chateau Saint-Michel makes Reserve Meritage and they make, you know, the Ethos series of Reds and Merlots and, you know, killer wines that are definitely higher priced, more premium style. Not always my cup of tea, but they make a huge range of things, you know, so it's not like they are just identified by the cheapest thing they make. But that is a choice they make to do that. Penfolds is another good example. They're Australian. They make... You know, Rawson's Retreat Chardonnay that's like a $8 or $10 bottle retail Chardonnay. And that's perfectly fine. They also make Pinfold's Grange, which is like an $800 bottle of wine. So they have tremendous range in terms of the different types of things they make. That's a lot of range. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't know how I would, uh, like, if I were inclined to be in that market for, you know, a thousand bottle bottle rain i don't know if i would go to the company that also made the i don't i don't <laughs> yeah. know i mean t- totally up totally up to the consumer to make that judgment call. yeah that seems kind of uh they're, they're pretty transparent about what they do and about you know they might make like mandavi when they make woodbridge by mandavi that's mm-hmm. all they make sure that the by mandavi is you know very clearly delineated uh and it's on the bottom shelf and the robert mandavi reserve cabernet is going to be on the top shelf so yeah. it's a choice that wine producers make and you know, you have, you have to pay the bills. So sometimes you got to sell those more affordable wines in order to finance the pet projects. Right. Because not yeah, everyone can true. just make one really nice wine at the very high end. It's a it's oftentimes a losing proposition. Yeah. Like they'll say, do you want to you do you want to know how to make a small fortune in the wine business? Start, oh. You start with a large one. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the thing you'll hear. Winemakers say a lot. I should have a I had a soundboard and I don't know where it is. 
but that the little <laughs> the little drum the little drum thing yes. you know here's another question what uh, do you think it's a what percentage and i don't want to put you on the spot here or anything but of the big companies that then sell their unsold or ec- or, or extra wine to the smaller ones that all they do then is relabel well it's it often works in reverse usually it's uh growers so if you look at california for example and i'm not a professional grape grower so i'm going to give you some anecdotal mm-hmm. things here but like charles shaw for example was started by uh bronco wine company and fred franzia uh so we talk about two buck truck the whole reason that got going is because there was extra juice extra wine floating around whether that was from napa the central valley occasionally some really nice stuff would end up in it in the early days right but when it once it became like a crazy commodity driven product um then you know qual i would say quality probably sank a little bit in the uh, over that time <clears throat> and by a little bit i mean you know we're talking about <laughs> two buck truck here right so um but what they did was say go around to growers who had an extra ton of fruit here ton of fruit there and be like hey we'll buy it we're not going to pay you a lot but we'll buy it and so they ended up getting a ton of bulk juice being able to turn it into wine quickly and get it to market as cheaply as possible um so usually it's not the big companies who control tons of vineyards who are the ones who are selling to smaller guys. Usually it's smaller guys, smaller growers selling to people who collect bulk oh. juice. That's been at least my understanding of okay. it. Um, and there is a lot of quality juice going around, but like Napa Cabernet, for example, there's no like extra cheap bulk Napa Cabernet floating around <laughs> at $15,000 a ton, which is by, by sometimes a low estimation depending on who you're buying it from and right. you go to Tokalon Vineyard and you know, might as well triple or quadruple that wow. price per ton of fruit. Uh, and so, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's nuts. Mm-hmm. That's a whole lot. So I'm um, going back to crunchy red fruit. So this is your baby now. It's yeah. a brand new baby. Brand new. It's uh, taking I'm up literally all of your time. Slapping labels on boxes this afternoon after this podcast and going to put them on a truck and send them out. And what's the, do you have a, uh, who's your team? Tell me a little bit about who you're working with. The team is just me. I actually had an interview this morning. Um, I'm interviewing people to be, you know, interns or to help out. So thinking about growing it, but it is very early in the process. Right. Uh, We are about 50 subscribers at this moment, which is great. It's great for just having really announced it a month, less than a month and a half ago. Um, Yeah, that's like, so the, man, that must have been scary. Yeah, absolutely it was. To get it started and. You must have an awesome wife to she's been her girlfriend or I'm, wife. I'm yeah, assuming yeah. here. Um, we've been married almost ten years. <laughs> oh, congratulations! Um, and you know, it was to step out and start this thing. I had a vision, uh, and I'm still kind of figuring out how to define it and how to tell the story of it. Yeah, uh, but so far, so good. It's been a it's been a fun ride so far. Well, I um, think the I think yeah. your approach, and I like how I mean, you, you, I, as I was looking through your website, you call it your philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I think that that philosophy really appeals to the not not the um, mega wine person, but the conscientious wine consumer where yeah. they care about that stuff. Like they want to support the well, you you can sort of call them small, these small producers. They're small businesses. Yeah, right? they are. They, small businesses, they want yeah. to support the small businesses and then yet still have the, you know, the good time and the, the fun of being uh you know, tasting all of these different types of wine. Yeah, we talk about lifelong learners. And when I talk about the wine business or being a sommelier, I think the people who are best at their job are the people who never stop learning, who who keep pushing themselves yeah. to grow and learn. And that's the type of people I'm looking for for the wine club is people who are open. Uh, there's lots of wine clubs that will just let you pick all the wines you get. And, and that's fine. And you can get an algorithm that does that or gives you some kind of like, I like this type of red with this type of flavors. Uh, but I think what that does is closes you off to the incredible variety and incredible uh, set of things that are out there that you may not ever get exposure to if all you do is going, going around telling people this is the exact flavor you want out of your wine and then expecting the wine to taste the way you want it to. Uh, I'm more interested in people who say, hey, this is an agricultural product. It comes from a vineyard. It's never going to always taste the same. Yeah. Uh, I am going to approach this with an open mind and learn something from it and let the wine teach me rather than me teach the wine. Yeah. Uh, and that's the type of 
person I hope to find to be a part of this club. And that might be a big wine collector person too. Those, those people are often very curious and very open-minded about wine. Well, um, and you're doing their legwork, so yeah. to say. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm doing the curation for you and I very much care about the wines going in the box being quality and I'm very picky about what goes in. Yeah. So the hope is that people will see that and understand that I'm curating it and that I have their best interests in mind too. So, so you're saying that the this week is going to be your first shipment. First shipment's going out this week. Uh, and again, it's every two months. So we're going to send another one out. Uh, what were the... What were the bottles for this shipment? So one of them we have here in front of us. This is the uh, Jean-Francois Mario, uh, La Pente des Vaudin. This is a Sauvignon Blanc from the Loire Valley, so right outside Turin uh, or in the, near the city of Tours. Uh, and this is a really beautiful example of a Sauvignon Blanc that actually, instead of being all grapefruity and limey, it actually has some of this nice stone fruit kind of rich texture on the palate. And Should we taste some? Yeah, let's taste some. Okay. Uh, tell us a story and I will go get glasses. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, so this is run by a man named Jean-Francois Mario, and he is a wine grower and producer that lives in the Loire Valley. And this is his Sauvignon Blanc. It's the 2018 vintage. Uh, I like this because this is a way to get a really affordable but killer wine in the box. This is a wine that were it from the Sancerre region or from... Uh, Puy Fume further upriver in the Loire Valley. It might be a $25 or $35 bottle of wine. But as it stands, this is a wine that might hit a retail shelf at $15 or $17, bucks, and I think it's so delicious. Ooh, that smells refreshing. great. Cheers. We got to get Cheers. that clink. And if you go to the website, crunchyredfruit.com, you can see all the wines that are currently in the uh, release. I partnered with a friend of mine, Greg Harrington, who's also a master Holy sommelier, cow. and he runs Gramercy Cellars, and that's a winery in Walla Walla, and he was able to get some wine that has never been released to the public before. It's only been wine club, so we have a 2013 uh, Oldfield Vineyard Syrah that's made by Gramercy Cellars. What I love about those guys is they have this thing called, what do you think? Is it good? You know, Sauvignon Blanc? I think this is delicious. Yeah. I've been... Um, It's been tough for me to find a white that I call delicious lately. Yeah. And again, it's my, for some reason, I've gotten in my head that I haven't liked any whites this year, which I know yeah. is ridiculous because <laughs> there's plenty of whites. And I've just, <laughs> then I'm laughing at myself because in something else, because on your Instagram, you say creator of wine memes or something like that. You put on your bio. <laughs> yeah. And one of them was like, Uncle Bob just wants a nice cab. <laughs> Or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm like, oh, my God, I'm Uncle Bob. Yeah, it's like, that's okay. all I want. I want is a nice cab. Look, I, I'm, I just, <laughs> I just, sometimes I just want a nice cab, too. So it's it's mostly in jest. Um, so I've been an Uncle Bob for a while. <laughs> but this is really good. Cool. Glad you like it. So, yes, the Gramercy Cellars Old Field Syrah 2013. So a, a bottle with a little age going into the box. And it's killer. It's super funky, peppery, smoky Syrah. Almost reminds you of Mezcal. It's really cool. Okay. Um, but you're saying the... So the exclusivity here was that only wine club members could have gotten it before. Yeah, and they but were super generous to allow Crunchy Red Fruit to have uh, some of it to go in our first box, which nice. was really cool. Um, I'm working with uh, the TNT Tanat. Uh, it's from Applegate Valley in Oregon. It's made by Day Wines. Uh, Brianne Day was sommelier turned winemaker as well, uh, doing a killer job. Uh, you can read more about that on the website. I have the Adroit Volage, and that's a Petillant Naturel. So it's actually a sparkling wine made kind of a la minute when they're, when they're making that wine and letting the wine finish fermenting. They bottle it right before it's done fermenting. So all that extra CO2 just gets trapped inside the bottle. Oh. Um, similar a little bit to the way champagne's made, but a little bit more streamlined and straightforward and a little more volatile. Uh, but that's a delicious little bubbly rosé that I think is utterly crushable, low alcohol, and really refreshing. Um, and then I have this Sauvignon Blanc, and I have another Albarino from northern Spain, from Galicia, made by Raul Perez, uh, who's an incredible winemaker. He's got a huge beard. He's like totally Gandalf. Um, <laughs> he's like the wine whisperer for white wine in northern Spain, for sure. He's one of the best guys making wine there. Um, that, and then I have, uh, gosh, I'm slipping my mind what else I, I missed. 
So these are these. So these are wines that you've tasted and have experience with. Mm-hmm. So have you met the winemakers for these? I have met the winemakers for like three out of four out of six of them. Okay. Yeah, and and that's you know winemakers I met will definitely get priority when I think about how to compose the boxes because I have relationships with a lot of these people. Right. Um, and they're doing all sorts of cool projects. Even sometimes I'll discover a winemaker who makes wine for a big company, but he's like, oh, by the way, I make a couple hundred cases of this little thing on the side. I just have a barrel or two of it here. And then I'll taste it and be like, oh, dude, this is better than the wines you're making with the big company. Because mm. sometimes the big company is like, okay, you're the winemaker. You need to make sure it tastes like this. Then it's shelf stable. And then it's all, everything's perfect about this. Um, and then sometimes they want to do a little more experimental kooky stuff on their own with their own little <laughs> tiny corner in the cellar. Right. And when they're giving you the tour through the wine, you're like, Hey, what's that stuff over there? And sometimes they'll be like, you want to taste that? I'm like, yeah, I want to yeah. taste it. Let's go check it out. And so <laughs> the oftentimes experiment. if you're curious and interested and ask questions when you're at a winery visit and, and show genuine, um, sort of care for the person and their work i think they it often opens the doors and you end up tasting really fun stuff that yeah you might yeah well even in my it. very limited when i ask those questions we've been invited back to do a barrel to do a barrel tasting or something cool. it's like i mean human nature right every we like to people like to talk about what they're passionate about if someone yeah. has interest in it it just like let me talk continue to talk yeah. to you about this yeah and it, no, that that's i mean the, the in my experience with the wine so far, yeah, it's 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 fun to drink, and sometimes you drink too much. Yeah. But the, <laughs> the that's like such a small. That's the 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 over the biggest reward here is the how you interact with people and the social aspect of it. And you know, yes. not just with friends that you want to share. Like if you find something that you really dig and you want to share it with your friends, and hopefully they agree with you or mm-hmm. then you have a little debate on why they disagree with you and yeah. and then uh l- luckily we've been fortunate to then extend that friendship to the winemakers yeah um i don't i don't know if this is normal or not but we we we're we go to the same we like to go to the same five or six and it's more of uh going to see a friend exactly more than a, just to that. go and, and and drink and that's why i love we love Soto Wine Works. I mean, that's just that's an yeah. awesome space. Yeah. Uh, to that's go I'm to. I'm shipping out of this afternoon. So <laughs> excellent. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a question about. So you have all of these bottles. Do uh-huh. they do? I mean, they just ship them to you, and you just have boxes and boxes. Totally depends. Uh, basically, like for Gramercy Cellars, they had all the wine out in Walla Walla, so they just shipped it right to my house, and I just brought it down to the my space and combined combined them into the boxes. Yeah. Um, but. So that's uh, you're, you're doing manual labor here. Oh yeah, and it, like <laughs> building all the inserts and building all the boxes. I have a big stack. I had to like unload pallets of cardboard off the truck the other day that were gonna form all the boxes, and I just had to like I didn't have a forklift or a pallet jack, so I just basically kicked them off the truck and then rolled them into my yeah. space and figured it out. Hmm. Um, Maybe you should go to South Seattle college and recruit a bunch of students it's a great idea actually <laughs> that's a great idea i mean i'm sure that they would help i mean yeah. free labor yeah to help you do that and then they're getting uh they're getting a behind the scenes of running a, a, biz- I think a wine business i think that's a good call actually i didn't even think about <laughs> specifically cultivating that um we'll see yeah so well yeah that, that works out let me know because that'll be super awesome <laughs> All right. so Jackson, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. I know that you've got a very, very full day ahead. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. I can't pronounce what you just, uh, what, just what the, you brought uh, here. Sauvignon Blanc from France. How about? Okay, but it's <laughs> it's it's delicious, and I'll put all of your information in the show notes uh, when I do when I share the when I share the show on social media. I'll put all of your your contact information there. Yeah. Uh, but if you give us the sixty second elevator pitch to why someone would want to reach out to you or learn more about you and sign up to Crunchy Red Fruit, what would it be? Shopping for wine is overwhelming. And oftentimes the types of wines you find at a grocery store are just not that good to begin with. So I'm bringing you wine that I've tasted and vetted because I taste thousands of wines a year uh, from small family growers that's made with organic viticulture that are really beautiful expressions of wines. And they're really hard to find wines that 
I'll bring right to your door rather than you having to go out and find them and shop for them. Uh, I am telling stories, I'm educating, and there's going to be video content around all these wines so that you can learn along with us as we uh, pop bottles and have fun with wine together. Perfect. So join Country Red Fruit. Check it out. So, yeah, definitely click in the link. Is it CrunchyRedFruit.com? Yeah. Uh, visit them, learn more, sign up. There's this nice big red button that says join now. Yeah. On the website. Click that. And uh, let's see. Was that what it is? Oh, yeah. And I forgot to tell people. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the show. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Uh, CZMediaPodcast.com is the website. And support our sponsors. One of them is CZ Media, which is me. I do pictures. I make videos. Uh, I make um, uh, all different types of content. I make websites, and then also Rancho Bravo Tacos. We didn't ask you what's a good taco. What's a good pairing for an asada taco? Asada taco. Uh, I would go sparkling wine. I love it. Oh, yeah, for, like like champagne okay. or that pet nat that's in the the petillon naturel that's in the box would be killer. Ooh. So love sparkling wine with tacos, especially with the crunchiness. If you have like you know, the raw onions or pickled onions on top. Killer. Yeah. Or I love like a Riesling with just a hint of sweetness. Not super sweet, but just a little bit. Okay. Really good. German Riesling. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, I'll note that. So thanks to Rancho Bravo for sponsoring. Uh, go and visit them. Their locations are in Capitol Hill and in Wallingford. RanchoBravoTacos.com. And they also uh, participate with uh, Uber Eats, Caviar, and Chow Now. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll be back with our 90 Day Fiance show next. My wife and I do a 90 Day Fiance. Do you watch 90 Day Fiance? No, no, but that sounds. You fun. know, you you have way better <laughs> things to do than to watch 90 Day Fiance. Uh, but thank you, and we'll be, we'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Well, hold on, we got a outro music. I'm into it. <laughs> oh. There we go. We're out with some uh, Big Papa, (laughs) which I know now is a wine song. Yeah. (laughs) I like this. In the place with style and grace Allow me to lace these lyrical douches In your bushes Who rock grooves and make moves with all the mommies The, the back, back of the, the club, club. Sipping my wet is where you find me The back of the club Macking yeah. holes, my crew's behind me Mad question asking, blunt passing Music blasting But I just can't quit Because one of these homies Biggie got to creep <laughs> with right. Sleep with, keep the epic secret Why not? Why blow up my spot? Cause we both got hot Now check it, I got more Mac than Craig in the the bed. Uh, Believe me, sweetie, I got enough to feed the needy. No need to be greedy. I got mad friends with Benzes. See notes by the layers. True fucking players. Uh, Jump in the rover and come over.